Good evening and welcome to Resistance TV. Uh, my name's Sean Blore and I'm going to be your host for this evening. Just bear with me a minute. Um, so it's Wednesday at 7pm and it's the 23rd of March and we're back here tonight with our resident academic Rod Driver and we're going to be building on the broadcast broadcast that we put out two weeks ago um, on propaganda and tonight we're going to be talking about war propaganda so following on from Rod's earlier presentation about exaggerated threats this presentation is about other forms of war propaganda this covers a wide range of strategies at the simplest level it involves governments and the media lying to us about events overseas and about the motives for war at a deeper level though it involves years of conditioning to manipulate our understanding of patriotism and militarism. So let's go over to Rod now. Good evening, Rod. Good evening, Sean. Thanks for that introduction. How are you this evening? You okay? I'm very well, thanks. Yeah. Good. Okay. Right, Rod. So over to you with our next episode of Elephant in the Room, and I'll speak to you later. Okay. Thanks very much. Okay. So uh, we've talked uh, in the past about uh, propaganda more generally. And we did a presentation a couple of weeks ago, which was about uh, a very specific form of propaganda, uh, which is exaggerated threats. Now we're going to summarize just briefly the other types of war propaganda. And this is particularly relevant at the moment, of course, because uh, uh, there is a, a war uh, as we speak uh, in uh, Ukraine, but not mentioned in the press so much. There are other wars in places like Yemen where uh, Britain and America are involved as the aggressors along with Saudi Arabia, which are not being talked about in the, in the mainstream press. So I'm going to do a sort of general background about war propaganda, and then we'll talk a little bit more about Ukraine and uh, the present day. So there's a great quote which is often used, which is, in war, truth is the first casualty. And that is a good description of what happens whenever a war breaks out. All sides try to use propaganda to manipulate uh, their populations and the populations of other countries um, to misrepresent what's going on. Now, this, is, this has been going on uh, since the beginning of recorded history, but it began, became very serious, became more systematic about a century ago, so around about World War I. And there was a great quote by the writer Aldous Huxley, who said, the propagandist's purpose is to make one set of people forget that certain other sets of people are human. And World War I specifically has been described as an extraordinary state accomplishment, mass enthusiasm at the prospect of a global brawl that otherwise would mystify those very masses and that shattered most of those who actually took part in it. So everybody in Britain was being brainwashed, using propaganda to believe that everybody in Germany was their enemy, or simultaneously everybody in Germany was being brainwashed to believe that everybody in Britain was their enemy. And uh, this, this has been the general pattern of, uh, of propaganda uh, ever since. So if we look at the uh, World War II, and in particular there were, in Germany, there was a man called Goebbels, who was the propaganda minister of Germany in the 1930s and 1940s. Now, he's often discussed, and he, he really tried to do a great deal of research on how to manipulate the population uh, and he turned it into a little bit more of a science. But what is not mentioned very much is that Britain and America were also doing huge amounts 
of propaganda during World War I and World War II. And one of the things I've mentioned in early presentations with propaganda more generally is that once something becomes the sort of established narrative, once propaganda goes unquestioned, then over time it becomes um, a sort of unquestionable truth. So if you look at World War One and World War Two, and Britain and America, we're taught that we, Britain and America, were the good guys and the opposition were the bad guys. But in fact, this is a complete misrepresentation of what happened in both world wars. You have to remember that in 1914, when World War One broke out, Britain, America and France, who are all fighting on the same side, were the dominant imperial powers in the world. So we were the leading invaders, occupiers, murderers and uh, torturers around the world. Germany wanted to develop its own empire. And so it was a fight for imperial supremacy. And for anyone who finds it very difficult to sort of challenge the, the information they've absorbed over a whole lifetime presenting Britain, America and France as the good guys in these wars, you can actually look at specific events just after those wars or towards the end of those wars, which contradict this mainstream narrative. So in 1917, whilst World War I was still beginning, the Russian people overthrew their leadership. We usually call them the czars, the dictatorship, and um, withdrew from World War I, recognizing that it was not a war that the people of Russia wanted to be involved in. Well, Britain and America didn't like this at all. And so we had been fighting alongside Russia up until that point, but then Britain and America invaded Russia to try and overthrow the government. On that occasion, they were not successful. And then if you jump ahead to after World War II, the people of Greece had been fighting alongside Britain and America during World War II. Now, after that war ended, the people of Greece did not want their former dictatorship back in power. And so that they, they wanted to, to choose their own government. Well, again, Britain and America didn't like this. And so we invaded Greece and we overthrew the government and we reinstalled their old dictatorship on this occasion, the British and Americans were successful. So they, these, these attacks that Britain and America do on their former allies rather contradict the mainstream narrative that Britain and America were the good guys in these world wars. Okay, if we come uh, forward in time to more recent events, I'm going to talk about a number of different types of a sort of propaganda strategy that are used. So the simplest is what we call censorship by omission. And the most blatant form of that is to never mention an invasion or a war at all. So very famously, the United States invaded Panama in 1989. They didn't tell anyone in the media they were going to do it. Ooh, it was over in a few days uh, before anyone in the media had a chance to talk about it. And then in 2006, something that was mentioned occasionally in the media was that Ethiopia invaded Somalia. What the press don't say is that the Americans were actually involved fighting alongside the Ethiopians invading Somalia. So that was a secret American war that's almost never mentioned by the mainstream press. And then if we come to the present day, Saudi Arabia have been fighting uh, against Yemen uh, for the last few years. What the mainstream media rarely mention is that Britain and America have been actively involved too. Uh, and so again, for a while, the British government tried to keep our involvement there secret until evidence of our involvement slipped out. So that's a sort of specific type of propaganda, but there's a more general uh, idea that uh, the government and the mainstream media 
simply don't mention that when Britain and or America invade another country, it's a very serious crime. Britain and America have invaded and destroyed Iraq, Afghanistan. We've overthrown the government of Libya. Uh, we've destroyed much of Syria, and we're active in Yemen. But the mainstream media don't want to admit that we are participating in these very serious crimes. But what the media will do is have complex debates about slightly trivial details. So if you think back to uh, the war on Iraq, you may remember there were lots of discussions about United Nations resolutions. There were lots of discussions about did we plan what our strategy was going to be carefully enough? Did we send enough troops? Perhaps we didn't define what our exit strategy was. So there'll be lots of discussion about these small details, but the big picture that we are actually committing a crime is rarely mentioned. In fact, the mainstream media, when it comes to our invasions of other countries, will generally be cheerleaders. They'll be cheering it on in a very positive way. So the media don't mention the very large-scale slaughter of innocent people in these wars, and they try not to mention other things like our use of weapons such as depleted uranium. So the media devotes a great deal of resources to misleading us. So uh, many of you will have seen videos on the mainstream media of smart bombs hitting their targets. And it looks like a scene from a video. You see a sort of a sight and you see an explosion. It's just a kind of puff of dust. You don't see the bodies. You don't see the devastation. But there is an implication that these weapons are incredibly accurate. They nearly always hit their targets. So innocent civilians are mostly unscathed. But in fact, that's completely the opposite of the truth. In fact, huge numbers of, of bombs and missiles uh, go a long distance away from their targets. And there are huge civilian casualties in every war that Britain and America fights these days. And in fact, America's strategy since 2014 in many of the wars were, which are being fought uh, is actually to risk their own soldiers less and less so they do more long-range uh, destruction using heavy bombers and long-range missiles and, and guns. Uh, so, in fact, the collateral damage, so I shouldn't use the term collateral damage because that's a propaganda term, the slaughter of innocent human beings is greater and, and greater. And the media and the government have clever ways of manipulating information. So they don't want to tell you how many innocent civilians have been killed so they'll relabel some innocent civilians as enemy combatants. And at one point they were labeling every man between the ages, I think it was of 18 and 65. So every military age man as an enemy combatant, which simply was not the case. And they use the term collateral damage to avoid talking about the fact that what we're doing is murdering and in many cases maiming very seriously uh, innocent people. And we've seen... Um, reports from the declassified files. So this is files that were originally classified, which are now out in the public domain that American strategy during the war in Vietnam about 50 years ago was to stonewall when it comes to the numbers of people dying. Don't tell the media or the public how many people are dying because the numbers of people killed in Vietnam were in the millions. And in fact, we've been lied to over and over again about the death toll uh, in Iraq. So at one point, an estimate came out in 2006 that about 600,000 people had died in Iraq. And the government kept coming uh, on the mainstream media saying, oh, we think a much lower figure is probably true. 
But in fact, insiders have come forward and said, well, actually, the government's own experts were saying this figure of 600,000 is almost certainly the best estimate. Uh, it's not an exaggeration. And yet the government lied to us. So the best estimate in the present day of deaths in Iraq is approximately 2.4 million. So again, an enormous figure that's never mentioned by the mainstream press. And uh, whenever uh, British or American mainstream companies have a, a military guest on TV, they will always be vetted beforehand. So 99% of the time they're going to say things that are consistent with the mainstream government narrative. And there will be a great deal of attempts to smear anyone who doesn't um, go along with the mainstream narrative. Uh, so whistleblowers, particularly journalists who try to, uh, to present evidence that contradicts the mainstream narrative. So most famously, uh, we saw that Julian Assange, who's still in Belmarsh today, I should point out for anyone who's not aware, he actually got married today in Belmarsh. So congratulations, Julian. Uh, let's hope that they don't keep you uh, locked up there too much uh, longer. Um, but people like Julian and organizations like WikiLeaks that try to present the evidence of the criminality of these wars, they will be, uh, they will be smeared and targeted uh, by, the, uh, by the mainstream media. And then if you look at specific events, some of you will remember that there was a great deal of torture at the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq. Photos emerged. Lots of people started talking about it. But the torture was part of U.S. government policy. Very, very senior people should have been arrested and prosecuted. Of course, that didn't happen. The focus was on a handful of low-ranking uh, individuals who were locked up. And again, that's a way to deflect attention away from the fact that this was policy determined by very senior people. Now, in fact, when I'd, uh, when I'd written this uh, sort of brief uh, summary of certain aspects of war propaganda, I came across a book written by an Italian writer called Anne Morelli, and it's called Principles of War Propaganda. Now, it's never been translated into English, uh, but bits of it are available uh, on the internet. And what she did was look at war propaganda for the last hundred years to see that there are some very clear patterns. The same themes emerge over and over again. And in fact, many of those uh, sort of patterns apply to the, uh, the wars that Britain and America have fought in the last 20 years. So, for example, our adversary's leader is inherently evil and resembles the devil. Well, you could apply that to the propaganda describing Saddam Hussein in Iraq, Gaddafi in Libya, Assad in Syria, and the Taliban in, uh, in Afghanistan, and a slight variation of it saying that Putin is mad or insane has been used recently uh, in relation to the, uh, the war in, uh, in Ukraine. And then uh, another one of the uh, standard principles of war propaganda is the enemy is purposefully committing atrocities. If we are making mistakes, this happens without intention. Whereas, in fact, uh, when you look at the way America particularly fights its wars, if you think of expressions like shock and awe, it's just this enormous bombardment of flattening whole cities where there are going to be huge numbers of innocent people uh, slaughtered. Uh, and then the enemy makes use of illegal weapons. That was actually used... Uh, uh, in terms of weapons of mass destruction allegations prior to Iraq, 
but also in relation to Assad uh, in uh, in Syria. And then the final point that I want to mention of those uh, sort of principles of war propaganda that Anne Morelli um, talks about, she says, whoever casts doubt on our propaganda helps the enemy and is a traitor. And again, I think we've seen this a bit recently with the Ukraine stuff that uh, the, the propaganda very much says, look, you're either with us and you're, a, you're completely with Ukraine or you're against the Russians. And there's no half and half. There's no kind of, well, you know, war is bad, but blah, blah, blah. They don't. The propaganda tries to say it has to be an all or nothing. You have to present the bad guys as evil. And we'll talk about a little bit about Ukraine in more detail at the end, because there's been some fantastic analysis done on that recently. OK, so now the second half of the presentation, I want to focus a bit more on war propaganda more generally. It's more subtle. It kind of permeates our society and is there in the background. So we're going to talk about militarism and patriotism. And there was a great quote by John F. Kennedy, who said, war will exist until the distant day when the conscientious objector enjoys the same reputation and prestige as the warrior does today. And I think that's a great quote. So our soldiers are always celebrated, uh, and yet conscientious objectors are not. And we need to ask, you know, why is that the case? So things like militarism permeate the entertainment industries. If you watch Hollywood movies over and over again, it's a very simplistic goodies versus baddies. And uh, it, the uh, the way it works over the years has changed. So prior to the collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1989, frequently the baddies would be the Russians. Uh, these days it can be terrorists or it can be some evil uh, mastermind who intends to do harm to the, to the world and so on. But it's always a simplistic goodies versus baddies. And that is deliberate. It's intended to make us see the real world in a simplistic goodies versus baddies uh, way where we our media always present us, our government, our military as the goodies. And uh, there have been lots of studies about Hollywood uh, as a propaganda tool. And uh, they the, the studies go into a lot of detail, but there's certain things worth noting. So often the military in America will assist Hollywood companies in making their movies, but as a condition for providing all these ships and airplanes and tanks and everything, they, they expect to have script approval. And the, uh, the people making the movies have to portray the US military in a good light. Uh, and uh, if you watch much at Hollywood, uh, you will be aware that that happens all the time. So there's a great example of this right back in 1986 with the movie Top Gun. So the Russians at the end of the film are portrayed as the bad guys. The uh, the pilots in the uh, flying the American airplanes are presented as the heroes. And the film was so spectacular, it led to an enormous rise in applications for people to become pilots in um, the US uh, Navy. And more recently, we actually see that with um, gaming websites and internet advertisements, there's all sorts of disguises going on. So in fact, there've been some internet ads for Hollywood movies, where the movie is a fairly military type movie. The ads are actually disguised recruitment websites. So if you click on a link, 
you get taken to something that's a recruitment website where you think it's actually something to do with the with the film and so on. And then the manufacturers of video games work very, very closely with uh, with the military. And often video games are almost indistinguishable from um, the systems that military operators use when they're using uh, drones and other modern weaponry uh, and so on. And this is this is deliberate. It's, it's to make sure that when soldiers go to war, they're not thinking of it in terms of killing human beings. They're just thinking of it like playing... Um, uh, playing a computer game and so on. So there's a very specific aspect of militarism, which is that you never question the soldiers. And most of you will be aware that you never, ever see any mainstream media coverage which questions the role of the soldiers. But in fact, soldiers have come back from various war zones like Iraq and Afghanistan. And this is both British soldiers and American soldiers. And they formed organizations like Veterans Against War and Veterans for Peace, where they've explained that the basic principle of basic training for soldiers is to brainwash people into believing that it's okay to go around killing other people. So you don't, the, the, the brainwashed soldiers don't see other human beings as human beings. They just see them as the enemy and it's okay to, uh, to kill them. So those people forming these organizations, the former soldiers, say, look, the reality of modern war is, and that this is their own words, the bodies of women and children everywhere. And it's, it's very important that those of us who are critical of war try to convey to young people who might be tempted to become soldiers in the future, to explain to them that their role is not patriotic. It's not defending the nation. It's not defending the people of this country or anything like that. It's criminal. It's invasions and occupations and mass murder. And it's important to recognize that this type of brainwashing actually begins in childhood. I remember growing up, and uh, so this would have been late 60s, early 70s, and all around me, if I went in a newsagent, I would find these little uh, booklets or comics called Commando or War Picture Library, which had very stereotyped uh, short stories of British soldiers, mostly as the heroes, or American soldiers as the heroes, fighting against the bad guys from Germany or Italy or, or Japan and so on. Uh, and so there's been a great effort by the government in Britain, and I think this is also happening in America, to try to present the military and spying in very positive terms. And in 2007, the, the, uh, the US government deliberately made a decision to increase military propaganda in our societies and very much in schools as well. So if you think about the role of cadet forces in schools, most people who join cadet forces never ever discuss the role of the military, but actually joining a cadet force and young people and having fun being in cadet forces at school is a way to condition people to make them more accepting of the military, but without getting them to engage with the idea that actually what the military does is invade other countries and kill people. And then if you see what we've had in the last few years, the various competitions like the Invictus Games or the Warrior Games in the United States, which are for former soldiers, and they're always presented as heroes. And in the UK specifically, we have a very close link with, between the royal family and the military. Many of the young men in the royal family join the military and they're used in a PR role when they uh, go to Afghanistan or something like that. 
And it's all about trying to present the military in a positive way. And what we're seeing now is that uh, our spy organizations, so in Britain, it's GCHQ. In America, it's the NSA. They, uh, they're actually running courses in schools where they teach children to do hacking. Now, I think one day this might uh, backfire on them, but it's intended to condition young people to accept the idea that for governments to spy on their, um, on their populations is reasonable and it's okay. And various people are researching this type of propaganda. And one organization said, Armed Forces Day, Remembrance Day, Uniform to Work Day, Camo Day, where people wear camouflage, in the streets, on television, on the web, at sports events, in schools, advertising and fashion, the military presence in UK civilian life is increasing daily. And it's always been with us. So I remember again when I was young, there would be uh, an air show, there would be some parachutists, there would be some soldiers with tanks, and children could sit in the tanks, could actually play with the guns. And this is still going on. And it's all about trying to create a positive image of the military without ever telling people what our militaries really do. And this has two roles. Firstly, it recruits soldiers directly into the military, but also it more generally increases support for uh, our militaries and for what they do. And this, this type of uh, patriotism and nationalism and so on, this type of propaganda goes, goes back again throughout recorded history. So having the head of a monarch or an emperor on a coin was an early form of propaganda. And still to this day, we have stamps with the queen's head on them. And it's all about, again, making us think of ourselves as one single nation, to think of ourselves as us, so that when our governments make decisions about invading other countries, we don't question them. We see ourselves as, as this sort of us, and so somebody else is portrayed as them. And there's lots of little things which all contribute to this. So if you look, I went to the Scouts when I was a child. Well, for those of you who are not aware, the Scouts were originally created as a sort of early training phase to lead people into uh, being suitable for the military when they got older. But as part of what you do in the Scouts, you learn the national anthem, you, uh, you, you salute the flag and so on. There are lots of pageants and processions where uh, it's very broad. So we have them celebrating the queen and royalty uh, and so on. And when you see military processions in the Soviet Union, uh, most people in this country would immediately go, ha ha, yes, that's just propaganda. But actually, we do the same thing in Britain and America. Uh, so it's important to recognize that our country is not a single entity. Often the interests of the rich and the powerful are very, very different from the interests of ordinary people. But the whole purpose of all of this propaganda is to forget about the crimes, never talk about the crimes of the rich and powerful, but to see ourselves as similar to them, to imagine that the motives they have for their actions are similar to the motives we would have for our actions, when in fact they're, they're very, very different. And then one specific area that's worth mentioning is what is the role of our intelligence services? Most people never, ever question the role of our intelligence services. They think it's to gather information to protect us. Well, a small part of what they do is to gather information 
to protect us. But a much bigger part of what they do, and this is especially true of the CIA in America, but it's also true of MI6 in Britain, uh, is to destabilize foreign governments, to try and get different leaders into power that will work more closely with Britain and America. But they also have one additional role that is rarely discussed, which is to provide information that supports policy. And so some of you will remember the, uh, the what was called the dodgy dossier, the famous Iraq dossier, which purported to claim that, uh, that Iraq and Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Well, in fact, that was nonsense. Uh, but in fact, uh, intelligence uh, agents have admitted that both in Britain and America, there were threats against intelligence staff if they failed to come up with any evidence to support staff. And at various points in America, they created the Office of Strategic Influence, which was what we call PSYOPs or psychological operations. Then they created the Office of Special Plans. And in fact, as Sean has mentioned on a number of occasions on these discussions in Britain, we have organizations like the Integrity Initiative and the 77th Brigade. And their role is to put out propaganda, particularly on the Internet, to, to mislead people uh, so we don't really understand uh, what's going on uh, in the war. And what you see if you look on the Internet is that uh, more and more opinions, particularly opinions that are critical of the dominant government narrative are being uh, censored. Uh, so uh, Wikipedia will blacklist an organization like Grey Zone, which has probably done the best reporting I've seen so far on uh, the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, the former ambassador, Craig Murray, who has an outstanding blog, he's very well informed, but he's pointed out that his entries in Wikipedia have been changed over and over again. And we're seeing more and more censorship by Facebook, Twitter, and Google. And uh, George Orwell, in his famous book, 1984, coined the term newspeak, where he pointed out that language can be used as a weapon. And so if you think about the phrases or words that we, we commonly use when we're talking about military activities, we'll use the word defense, the defense industry, or the Ministry of Defense. But in fact, Britain doesn't do defense and the United States doesn't do defense. We do offense. We do invasions and occupations. So it has nothing to do with defense. So the word actually means the opposite uh, of what's really going on. If you look at things like official secrets or national security, those are very vague phrases that are actually when you start digging and looking at what, what how those terms are being used and how those the, uh, the ideas are being applied, they're actually ways just to censor discussions about British and American crimes. And there'll be phrases like national interest. Well, there is no such thing as the national interest. There are the interests of powerful people, which are very different, as I've mentioned, from the interests of ordinary people. So the, the, the nation doesn't have a single set of interests. And you'll sometimes hear in the news the phrase international community. Well, again, that tends to mean America and a handful of allies that go along with what America wants. And frequently, many other countries uh, are not part of uh, what is labeled the international community. And in fact, we've seen this with, um, with Ukraine. So lots of countries, Britain and America leading the way, have criticized uh, Russia. But lots of other countries, so China, India, and so on, have not been so critical 
of, of, um, of Russia, and they've refused to impose the sanctions that America wants. And then you'll hear a term like rogue state banded about occasionally. It used to be used a lot in relation to Iraq or North Korea and so on. Whereas, in fact, probably the biggest rogue state in the world would be the United States in terms of its foreign policy uh, crime. So, again, it's a propaganda term. And I want to mention something very specific, which is important for uh, people who've been involved with the Labour Party over the years. When Jeremy Corbyn um, was, uh, was running uh, for office, he he would make it clear that he was critical of all of our wars, you know, and his views were that actually we should try and avoid doing wars if we could possibly avoid it. And that should be seen as a very positive thing. The whole media should get behind that and say, oh, that's great. That's what everybody should be doing, you know. But in fact, they did the opposite. They turned it round on him and they would say, oh, he's soft on defence. He's soft on terror. And But these phrases don't mean anything. And so they, they turn a positive in, into a negative. And if he objects to something like drone assassinations, which by any uh, uh, sort of serious analysis are just murder that should always be illegal, um, but again, he would be described as soft on, on terror. So taking a positive, the media will use it as propaganda and turn it into a negative. And what you find when you start to study this sort of thing is that there is subtle propaganda all the time that a, a politician who's critical of war will be introduced as radical, whereas the pro-war politicians won't be introduced as the insane sociopath, which is how I would describe them, that they'll be taken much more seriously and presented in a much more positive light. Okay, so that would normally be the sort of the presentation, but I want to mention a little bit about you, what's been going on in Ukraine at the moment, simply because it's so sort of relevant. Now, the people at Media Lens, who are, uh, if you've never heard of Media Lens, they're this uh, outstanding pair of guys who do a detailed analysis of propaganda uh, in Britain, particularly the BBC and The Guardian uh, and other supposedly left-wing or progressive uh, outlets. And they've recently just done one all about Ukraine, pointing out the, uh, the double standards of um, our coverage the mainstream coverage of Ukraine relative to the mainstream coverage of um, our wars. So, for example, they talk about um, uh, the mainstream media hit, uh, having photos and articles about these plucky women in Ukraine making and throwing Molotov cocktails as resistance fighters. But you will never, ever see that description used to describe people living in Palestine resisting the Israelis or people in Iraq who were resisting um, the British and American invasions. And then everywhere you look, this phrase is like, I stand with Ukraine. But nowhere will you see, I stand with Yemen, which is, is a war that has caused far, far more damage to the people of Yemen than the, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has so far caused uh, to people in Ukraine. So there's Ukrainian flags everywhere. We've seen the propaganda in the newspapers saying that Putin is mad, which is one of the things that I uh, that I talked about. Uh, and then they'll start saying, oh, we think Russia wants to recreate the Soviet Union. Uh, was in fact, there's no evidence of, of that at all. In fact, all the evidence suggests that it, Russia doesn't even want to conquer all of Ukraine. It wants to denazify Ukraine and it wants to stop uh, uh, Ukraine having... Uh, American missiles that would point at Russia uh, within its borders. So it wants Ukraine to be uh, independent and not part 
of the military alliance, uh, NATO. And in fact, the propaganda has been quite astonishing. So we've got to the point where tennis players are being told they have to denounce Putin before they can enter a tennis tournament. Well, wouldn't it have been great if 20 years ago, every sports person in Britain and America was told, you have to denounce Bush or Blair or Rumsfeld or Cheney for their destruction of Afghanistan or Iraq, or you are not allowed to compete in serious sport. But of course, that would, that would never happen. Um, and we're seeing social media companies shutting down Russian outlets. Well, again, we've never seen social media outlets saying, hey, we need to shut down the BBC and we need to shut down The Guardian because they're doing pro-war propaganda for Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya and Syria and so on. And in fact, Noam Chomsky made a really interesting point in an article uh, he wrote uh, where he pointed out, why does NATO even exist after 1990? It has no real meaningful purposes. Purpose, sorry. So all of this propaganda is intended to once again reinforce the good guys versus bad guys narrative, which is the standard playbook where in this case, Russia and specifically Putin are demonized and they're the, the bad guys. So uh, I think that's probably a good time to uh, open it up to uh, to question and answer and any uh, any other observations that anyone has. Thanks very much for that, Rod. Um, yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that we were talking about before we came on air was, you know, what we used to do and, you know, I used to teach and uh, one of my areas of expertise was media and literacy. And I think one of the other things that we have to be aware of when we're watching TV or we're reading newspapers is not just listen to the words that people use um, to describe different things. You know, they use all these weasel, we, we call them weasel word, words, don't we? Um, but it's also the, the, con the, the context in which things are presented. So the background pictures that they're using. Um, I remember, you know, famously, um, uh, Claudia Webb was on Channel 4 um, and she was um, trying to defend Jeremy Corbyn about something. I think he was being called a Russian spy or something. And they had a picture of uh, Corbyn in the background wearing a Russian hat and stuff like this, you know. So it's all this kind of thing that I think, you know, also people need to look out for. It, it's it's not only um, the audio cues that they need to look for. They also need to look for the visual cues as well um, and be aware of of how the media try to manipulate our thoughts and and how we think what would you say about that no i think that's a really good point in fact i remember years and years ago uh, as part of something i was studying at university doing an analysis of um the way the mainstream media were covering uh, a number of terrorist events that that had taken place uh in the previous few years so i don't know if you remember that were a small number of very incompetent terrorist attacks. So there was a guy called the Underpants Bomber who on an aeroplane set himself alight and so on. And there were, there were a number of these. And yet the media were trying to kind of hype this out of all uh, proportion. And they were using very, very sort of specific images that were chosen very carefully. And it's, it's very interesting, the sort of propaganda or the psychology of images, you know the, the the old phrase is a picture is worth a thousand words. If they can get the right propaganda image, which um, 
in in one particular case, it was an image of students who would normally be throwing their academic caps, their mortarboards up in the air, but then there was a gun being held in the air by one of them. And it, it's they're quite striking. And what you say about this thing with Jeremy Corbyn being portrayed, the background was changed to red and he had the hat. And it was quite clearly, without saying the words, it was saying he's he's a Russian kind of stooge. And uh, it's all around us. So every picture that the mainstream media use is chosen very, very carefully. You know, they have huge data banks of images to use, and they are trying to portray uh, a certain narrative, a certain mindset, and, and so on. And, and until you are incredibly familiar with it, most of the time we kind of look at these things without, we, you know, every time you're reading a newspaper and you're flicking through, you're not taking every picture and breaking it down in your mind and saying, hmm, I wonder what the propaganda elements are there. It's just kind of there in the background, but it's happening over and over again. And it has an impact on us. And it gradually affects the way we think about who the who we should take seriously, who we should uh, think of uh, as a criminal and so on. And it's very, very effective. And it, as I mentioned at the beginning of the presentation, it, the, the serious analysis of this started about 100 years ago. And so there are psychologists who devote their lives to studying these things and using it against us. And so the, the 77th Brigade and the Integrity Initiative and so on, you know, they're using very sophisticated psychology. And now with the use of the Internet and the way um, it's very, very difficult when you come across things on the Internet to know for sure exactly what you're looking at a lot of the time. We're being manipulated over and over again in very subtle ways. And it all builds into a big picture that changes the way we think. That's right. And um, it has a specific term in psychology. It's called neuro-linguistic programming. And I think, um, you know, uh, news newsrooms and uh, media people um, have become, and, and, I, I, and I would say, you know, almost positively, the intelligence services have become experts in neuro-linguistic programming. It's something that people will probably be familiar with if they ever watched the Darren, uh, Darren Brown um, programmes. Uh, I think he used to do a Channel 4 programme on um, showing how he could manipulate people's thoughts um, using NLP specifically. So it's, it's a very interesting topic. Um, and I would, I would say to people, if they want to test themselves on whether they're reading something correctly is turn the sound off and try and see if you can figure out what the story is about before you actually then turn the sound back up and you'd probably be quite surprised that it's something completely different to what your your brain is telling you through watching images um, on the tv um, just one more quick question um, before we bring lizzie in um, you know, the, another thing, um, oh, that was it. Um, I was playing one of my tap games on my iPad. You know, when you're bored, you're watching TV and, you know, nothing much on and I tap away on my iPad. I'm sure lots of people do it. Um, and then every couple of minutes, there's an ad that comes up. And um, I've been getting um, little video clips of Zelensky doing his speeches. Um, which I thought was quite shocking. You know, I normally get little videos for uh, adver adverts for other games or for, um, you know, products and things like that. But now I'm getting videos of Zelensky and his propaganda. That's very, very, very strange. I, I haven't had any of those yet. 
But it's it's only a matter of time before this happens more and more. Yeah, well, I was quite shocked. I, I found it quite shocking, actually, um, you know, that they are actually tapping into to video games. So, you know, these there'll be kids watching this, you know, little kids who are playing these, you know, daft little games, and they'll be watching this kind of stuff. And, it, you know, do, do you really want your kids being, you know, have, have this propaganda forced on them? And, and one other thing was... Um, you know, talking about how propaganda or war propaganda changed people's, um, changes his, history, really, and the way history is written um, and the, the actual facts about historical narrative, which we've seen a lot, I think, unfold during this Ukraine war. People seem to forget that this war has been going on for eight years. It didn't just start 21 days ago. Um, and, um, you know, I was talking to my mum about something uh, to do with the Ukraine war. She's 80 now. And um, she said, something about you know oh well you know the US won the war for the second world war for us and I was like no they didn't it was Russia and she argued with me that it wasn't Russia you know how how does this happen how how do people's narratives get changed so drastically over the years well that's that's a really good point and I, I think you've got you've picked up on a lovely example there of how the vast majority of people in Britain or America will will believe almost without question because they've kind of heard this so many times at a subconscious level that we Britain and America were responsible for for winning World War II and in fact the serious fighting was happening on what was called the Eastern Front so this was Germany fighting against Russia which was an enormous uh conflict so this is not to say there wasn't other fighting going on so Britain fought against Germany uh mostly in North Africa America was fighting against Japan but Easily the biggest phase of the war was Germany versus Russia, where tens of millions of people uh, died and eventually the Russians were victorious. And I always think it's very interesting that if you think about Britain's involvement in the war, so we did some long range bombing uh, for various periods, but we didn't sort of get involved back in the war in, in a big way. And the Americans didn't get uh, involved in, in the war with Germany in a big way until June the 6th, 1944 and the D-Day landings. Well, by that point, the Americans and the British were pretty sure the war was over. The Russians had actually so dominated against the Germans on the Eastern Front that the, the Brits and the Americans just sort of went in. And whilst the landing in Normandy was, was complex and very dangerous, uh, ultimately they had a much smoother path to, uh, to Berlin than the, than the Russians did. And so I, I think this is one of those things where the more we can talk about how our history books completely distort uh, what went on and how our mainstream media doesn't make any attempt to talk about what really went on. Well, I, th I think it's, I think it's, you know, what you said before, I think it's a lot of it is Hollywood as well. You know, ho Hollywood are getting the, you know, people don't have time to read books they don't want to read books um that you know they'd be happy to watch a video or a you know go and watch a film at the cinema so over the years hollywood have dominated this narrative um and i think changed people's um you know memory of, of what actually happened and and you know indeed we you know we have to it, it comes back into the context today that we have to remember that the russians lost around 27 30 million uh, men in in that war um against the nazis um and you know 
that this is one of the reasons uh, that Putin is given for, um, you know, coming into the Donbass area, first of all, and then now into Ukraine, is to um, to get rid of the neo-fascists um, in the far right in, in Ukraine. Um, OK, Rod, I'm going to go to Lizzie because we've only got 10 minutes left. So, Lizzie, are you there? Hi. Hiya. Hi. What's going on in chat today? Well, we've got a lot of comments. Um, a lot of people saying, Rod, you're so informed and knowledgeable. So that's good to hear that you're appreciated for your depth of knowledge. Uh, Jonathan Cooper says, war is what happens when the bourgeoisie manage to convince people who they say they the enemy is. Revolution is when the proletariat decide for themselves. So we do find, don't we, that the word propaganda is only used when there is a revolution. So propaganda is used by the revolutionaries to, to prompt people to revolt. It's never used, don't you think, that when, when it's a war situation? <laughs> the uh word. Oh, that's a good question. I'd have to study its use in uh, sort of revolutionary situations because I haven't really, really done that. So it is interesting that until a few years ago, the word propaganda had pretty much disappeared from general usage in Britain and America. It, it just was never used. And I, I, I had this conversation with some academics at the time saying, why is it nobody talks about propaganda? And they, they came up with what I consider to be a completely bizarre argument. They said, well, you can argue that everybody's got a bias, which is true. And so whatever anybody writes is intended to propagate a particular view and is therefore propaganda. And so everything becomes propaganda. But that's a really unhelpful way to think about it. So the way I see propaganda more usefully is not to focus on one article or one poster or one movie, but it's to say it's when the whole of the mainstream system actually has a bias, which when it comes to British and American broadcasters and newspapers, mostly newspapers, it's a bias in terms of being pro-British and American militarism and our wars and invasions overseas. And when it's incredibly difficult for any dissenting opinion to get, to get heard within the whole system. That, to me, is a propaganda system. I think that's a, a more useful way to, uh, to think about propaganda. Yeah, well, Bobby Carnegie said uh, there's so much more to the tragedy of Ukraine than we are commonly cognizant of. Russian propaganda is banded about as if we weren't also aware that propaganda is equally a weapon of words. The West is so good at strewing around our TV, radios and in news bulletins. One only has to view Oliver Stone's documentary film. Now, you mentioned him earlier, didn't you? So you've probably answered this question already. Um, his film, Ukraine on Fire, supplied a humdinger of recent Ukrainian history, indicating how messed up Ukraine is. The USA in Stone's film is seen very as very much manipulatively embroiled. So would you say that the situation in, in um, the Ukraine is, has forced Russia into a corner? So, so I've watched a number of uh, commentators from uh, lots of different places. And what's very interesting is we're seeing commentators who would normally be very kind of pro-American militarism. So this is 
American generals and uh, American military advisors and so on who are critical of the West, who are critical of NATO, saying, yes, this is happening because we have backed Russia into a corner and Russia have been trying to engage in discussions for years in saying, let's have an agreement where Ukraine is neutral, where America cannot put huge, powerful weapons in Ukraine pointing at Russia, uh, and let's stop also the violence towards Russian-speaking people in eastern uh, Ukraine. Those would be the sort of three main uh, issues. Russia's been wanting to have serious conversations about that for years, and there have been some conversations, but it's clear the Americans have no interest in a peaceful outcome. It's clear they are putting pressure on the Ukrainian leadership not to uh, to do anything to have a peaceful uh, outcome. But it's also clear that the, the two European countries that might have most influence in these negotiations would be the Germans and the French. And they have participated in negotiations, but they don't appear to have put any pressure on the Ukrainians to actually um, fulfill uh, any of what's been discussed. So um, there's an awful lot of people working very hard not to have a peaceful uh, outcome to this. And this is something that really interests me because... Uh, if you go back to um, various other wars that we've talked about, so when Britain and America destroyed Libya, in fact, there were lots of people on the Libyan side who said, look, let's sit down and have a conversation and see if we can work out a peaceful solution. And it was Hillary Clinton who didn't want a peaceful solution. If you go back to 1995 and what happened in uh, various parts of Yugoslavia, there was a peace agreement on the table called the Dayton Accords, but the Americans put so many conditions with that peace agreement that it was completely impossible that it would ever be implemented. What the Americans wanted was to occupy Yugoslavia forever with their military, and no government would ever uh, sort of uh, accept that. And for British viewers, most famously, I may have mentioned this in the past, that before uh, Maggie Thatcher sent the military to uh, the Falklands to fight against the Argentinians, there were peace negotiations on the table and Maggie Thatcher was not interested. So it's very interesting. Time and again, when these wars are going about, going on, there are peaceful opportunities, but some parties actively undermine those peaceful opportunities. And in the ones I've studied, it tends to be the West, that the Americans and the British, that undermine uh, the opportunities for peace. Yeah, that's uh, we think that's probably to keep the war machine going, hey? That's a good point. I just want to sort of tie into that, that there are a lot of very big weapons companies that will make not only make money from this war, but if European countries can be persuaded that this is not just uh, an isolated incident, that Russia wants to kind of recreate the Soviet Union, then they will massively increase their military spending. And it will be amazing uh, for weapons manufacturers. All the evidence is that Russia does not want to recreate the Soviet Union. It's just been backed into a corner with Ukraine. But there's lots of European governments who are now starting to say the things that suggest they might increase their military spending. Yeah. Actually, John says, uh, hindsight and retrospection, fine. 
I understand, but like World War One and World War Two, were they fought by elite conspired rules between the conflicting sides, parties? Were they all arrangements? Uh, oh, the question of arrangements is interesting. So at various points, I've done a lot of research on the different world wars, and there are lots of theories that very powerful people in different countries were, were wanting the, these wars. And um, I've never come across anything that would definitively say that it was um, a sort of arrangement in any sense. But I think if you can, you can look at uh, a simpler uh, situation where America fought against Vietnam back in the 50s, 60s and 70s. Okay, and lots of people talk about uh, a sequence of events um, that was a sort of misunderstanding about whether some Vietnamese torpedo boats were shooting at American warships. And that began the whole war. And I say to people who put forward this argument, you know, it's confusion in war. The fog of war is the phrase that's often used. You have to take a step back. This was a war between a giant imperial military power and a very poor country. And it was taking place in Vietnam. It wasn't taking place in America. That war happened only because the Americans wanted it to happen. If the Americans didn't want that war to happen, it, it wouldn't happen. They would just move their warships further away and so on. It was a war of choice by the Americans. And I think if you look at any uh, conflict, and this would include World Wars One and Two, there will be people... Uh, let's say in the United States, who will say, yes, it's in our interests if this war happens and for us to get involved and so on. And I, I'm sure that is happening all the time behind the scenes in every country where there are some powerful people who believe they will benefit even from the largest scale wars. Yeah. Well, and the last one was the question of neurolinguistics. And of course, Sean's pretty much covered that now i think and i don't know what your what your understanding of neurolinguistics is um you, most people imagine that it's a tool to improve your own life it's not actually that in in this sense because it, it is people go to university to learn to become journalists now or to learn to become hosts of tv shows things like that so Kathy Newman is a very good one of uh, she has neurolinguistics. They're all taught neurolinguistics. And Kathy Newman is particularly adept at neurolinguistics. And so she positions people on the set. And Sean was saying about if you want to know, if you if, if you think that you know what the program's about, turn the volume down and watch the pictures, and then you'll have a completely different take on what the program is about. So she positions people on the set uh, so that they're at, at an advantage or a disadvantage. She'll put the camera on, on the person that she wants to advantage and she'll remove the camera and put the other person that she wants to disadvantage away from the camera. And also, the, yes, the use of graphics behind them, but it's not even that. It's She'll present a question. She'll say, so how long have you been a communist then, Rod? You know, and then you have to defend yourself then. I, I'm not actually a communist. Oh, I thought you were a communist. <laughs> oh, we've lost Rod. <laughs> oh dear i think well, he also got excited about your your question there and he's <laughs> perhaps he's gone off to research 
What I wanted to say to everybody in the audience was that if you are interested in knowing about this, then the best bet is to take a look, take a small course on neuro-linguistic programming and try and imagine how, yes, you can apply that to improving your own life, but it's at the cost of someone else's life. So when you look at it, it's actually quite a capitalist thing. Um, it, it's all about, you know, Thatcher said there's no such thing as society. And we've all been propagandized into believing that it's we're all out for ourselves and no one else matters. So uh, and I think that we've all been we've all been conforming to that all our lives, haven't we? Especially, you know, our generation and the generations coming. I think the only thing that has um, stopped them completely propagandizing the entire world is the alternate news like the grey zone like oliver stone like you know like like john pilger like peter oborn is now speaking out about the truth of the matters that he once would have reported on and come you know he would have contained himself to the narrative that he was supposed to be espousing now he won't do that so I know we've got a minute over time, but I just oh, it's, it's to... fine. We're, you know, we, you, I think it's really important what you're talking about, Lizzie. I only barely, barely touched on neuro linguistic programming, and I know it's something you do know a lot about. Um, you know, I have a one of my best friends is a psychologist, and he spent years teaching neuro linguistic programming to salespeople so that yeah. they can use it in selling products. Yeah. And, well, this is it. it. It is. And and when Rod was saying about the, the word propaganda isn't used, why isn't it used anymore? Because it was changed to neuro-linguistic programming, basically. <laughs> how to propagandize yourself a better life, how to um, how to propose to propagate a belief that you are better than them to everybody and that they really need this product. Mm. I think maybe Lizzie you know we you, I think maybe you should do you know do, take some time and do a video um in the future um for resistance tv on NLP because I think it's such an important aspect of um of all our lives now and like well, you say you, it becomes systemic came, yeah you came to the northern media festival didn't That's you right, when yeah. uh, I, I used to give talks on it regularly and I've got a few videos that most people won't have ever seen, um, you know, talking about how, how, like, for example, Kathy Newman puts, puts people on her set um, at a deliberate disadvantage so that, uh, so, you know, like, like the picture of Corbyn wearing a Russian hat, mm. you know, so yeah well i'll do that one day what do you think rod do you uh do you know much about neurolinguistics oh you're muted sorry about that for some reason a few minutes ago i got thrown out of the studio and i uh i didn't reconnect correctly i'm not quite sure what happened so uh no i don't know anything about neurolinguistic programming so if you guys do a show on it i'll be uh, i'll be sure to watch 
Okay. Oh, well, Liz Lizzie's our expert in that area. Well, thank you very much for, for coming on again, Rod. Hopefully we'll see you again in a couple of weeks and we can uh, talk about another subject um, that's on your, uh, your blog. Um, I encourage everybody to go and have a look at the Elephant in the Room blog, um, which Gaz, Gaz I know, has uh, posted the link to. Um, so I'd like to, to thank our guests again this evening. I'd like to thank you all for watching. Don't forget to subscribe. Please share this video around. We need to get more subscribers. We need to educate people. You know, <clears throat> this is a, a massive part of what Resist is trying to do here is, is trying to give people the truth and honesty about what's what's going on in the world um, and, uh, and encourage people to come on, on and debate that with us. Sorry, Lizzie. Share it privately if you are trying to remain as a member of the Labour Party because, of course, resist is prescribed. Although I don't know why anybody would want to do that these days anyway. But you can also follow us on Twitter, on um, Instagram, Facebook, um, and we're also on uh, Telegram and hopefully soon to be on TikTok. Um, so thank you all again. Don't forget, you can also... Um, join up to the resist movement um, or you can um, donate to us through paypal.me forward slash um, face uh, festival of resistance so thank you very much for listening and we'll see you all next week bye, bye.